Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. My guest this week is Sharon Bowers, literary agent who works between New York and Dublin in Ireland. Sharon represents leading authors like Laurie Rader Day, Hilary Fannin and Senator David Norris. And Sharon recently gave a talk about hearing women's voices in literature, which I thought was really interesting. And it turns out that things are changing in the publishing world big time. There's some good news. 80% of the buyers of fiction are women between the ages of 18 and 45. The top people in America are women all the way down from the CEO down there's women running it and it's really a significant change. And because women are now in leading positions throughout the literary world this is making life easier when it comes to the basics like maternity leave. It's no longer a career-ending mommy tracking move. So from from the point of view of an industry that's that's friendly to women working in it. Women in book publishing go out on maternity leave and they come back. It's not like you were trying to make partner at your law firm and you never got back in the door once you had a baby. When it comes to best-selling writers, it's not all about Jane Austen either. Just look at the success of Sally Rooney and another well-known woman who continues to outsell everyone else who's known instantly by her initials, JK. JK Rowling, of course half a billion. She is one of the, she is the best-selling modern author of all time. So hi Sharon, I'm joined today by Sharon Bowers of MBG Literary, is that right? Yes, hello. Um, Also, Folio Literary Management in New York now. My agency is merging with a new one in New York. Oh, that's exciting. That's news. Yes. Wonderful. So Sharon, you're an expert on the whole area of literary of the literary world and you gave a fantastic speech to Trinity Women graduates in Trinity last year and it was really interesting the topic was hearing women's voices in literature um, we, we tend to not know so much about women in literature maybe you could tell us what was the inspiration for your talk and where did you start with it um, you know that particular speech last autumn um, I when the topic was given to me as hearing women's voices, this the the conference that, that we were at was hearing women's voices. And when I was asked to speak on hearing women's voices in literature, I've been a literary agent for a long time. I've worked in book publishing for a long time, um, both in, in New York and in Dublin, where I now live. Um, I went to Trinity um, as postgraduate and studied Irish literature. And my husband is Irish, is how I come to be here now. But I started thinking about it and initially, hearing women's voices in literature. I was making myself lists of female authors that I love, but that's just endless. That that comes down to hundreds and even thousands of names. And, and how do you make a point? And I started thinking about what was more important. And as a literary agent, I make my living selling authors to publishers, you know, because most of the major publishing houses um, it's not so in Ireland where the houses tend to be a little smaller, even for the major publishers, but, but in, in America, certainly, and in London as well, if you don't have a literary agent, they generally won't consider you. Um, so you need to, we're sort of considered the first line of gatekeepers and we have our relationships with the publisher. So I, I've backtracked there a little just to talk about, you know, why the commercial aspect of it matters to me so much, but I started thinking about it more, um, hearing women's voices and how do we do that, you know? Um, and, and I realized that, that, in fact, there's some good news coming out of book publishing because it's one of the few places where, where weirdly, women tend to excel. We have a lot of power 
in, in this industry. How is that, uh, how is that power manifest? You know, some of it is in a negative sense. Publishing tends to be run. There was a recent study um, that I actually took part in a survey uh, last year, and they were trying to look at the makeup of book publishing um, in general for publishing professionals, um, partly because of you may have come across the controversy about American Dirt, which is a novel about recently published um, in the UK and, and America and in Ireland. I saw a big stack of it in, in the window in, in Dubre Books. Um, but it was written by a middle-class American white woman about a Mexican immigrant woman's journey to the North. And that opened what has been a long time coming, a conversation about who is allowed to tell whose stories. Um, and, and concurrently, I think they rushed the data on through. They were just sort of asking about your, you know, the makeup of publishing. It's traditionally very white. It's traditionally very middle-class. Even now in the UK, I don't want to get deeply into the class issues, but I'm very aware of it, you know, in America, like when, when Jackie Onassis was coming back to New York many years later, she worked in book publishing for many years. You know, we still have a thing called Summer Fridays because people with trust funds needed to get off early on Friday or not work at all so they could go out to their posh summer homes, you know, so. Wow. It's a different world, yeah. It was a different world and I and most people in book publishing these days don't come out of that background, but now and then I'll run across it in the UK. I'll be talking to some bright young editor, think how brilliant this person is. There was a young man, I noticed his wristwatch was more than his yearly salary could have possibly been. You know? <laughs> so, so from that background, for a long time, women did not have a lot of power, you know, but now things have come around in book publishing to where when this data was published, I want to say it was Boston College, I don't want to be quoted, it was a university in Boston doing the, the research. Book publishing is the numbers were just kind of horrifying, you know, we are like 85% white middle class women are running the show. Um, so from, from the point of view of an industry that's, that's friendly to women working in it. Women in book publishing go out on maternity leave and they come back. It's not like you were trying to make partner at your law firm and you never got back in the door once you had a baby, you know, because a lot of women run it. And increasingly it used to be that you went up through the ranks and it was women, 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 and then you got to the very top and it was men that were running it. And increasingly Penguin Random House, which is the largest book publisher in the world, I was going to say English speaking world. Um, there may be larger ones in China and India that I'm unaware of their data, but, but it's the top woman in America. <laughs> there's the top people in America are women all the way down from the CEO down. There's women running it. And it's really a significant change. Um, I don't think that that has had anything to do with the power of women's voices on the page, but it does mean, I think, um, that, that women are, you know, we, hopefully we, when we're running things, we try to be fair. You know, sometimes a woman in power is just as much as a man in power and she's making the company money and doing what she can. But, yeah. but it's, but you're noticing a lot more women at the top and they're, they're more, they're more amenable to being flexible with home working and, um, you know, allowing people to come back from maternity leave. So, the culture, the nourishing environment is there. 
It's possibly because we're not a huge money industry in a lot of ways. There is a lot of money to be made from best-selling books, but you know, for years, one of the reasons that wealthy people a long time ago, decades ago, tended to work in book publishing was because if you didn't come with a trust fund, you couldn't live on the salaries they were offering. Wow, wow. Yeah, so tell was, me about who's buying the books. Is it roughly 50-50 male, female? You know, well, where does the income come from? That's one of the interesting pieces of data that has emerged recently. I was just reading a report two days ago because, you know, we're all seeing the same upheaval economically in book publishing that all industries are at the moment. But 80% of the buyers of fiction are women between the ages of 18 and 45. And that's a massive, you know, power voting population essentially you know they publishers want to publish things at least in the fiction space that women want to buy because we're the ones buying it and and sometimes agents will come to publishers and I've done it myself and say oh no this is a book for men men generally aren't out there buying it women buy books for the men in their lives often which is not to say that men don't read and it's not to say that men don't go to the bookstore you know they mm. do definitely but the vast majority of people who lay down money to purchase books are women unquestionably wow that's amazing so and this has been going on a long time i presume and these are recent statistics but we know even going back to jane austen that you know it was a women's pursuit probably because in those days women spent a lot of time at the home where the men went out that's true. <laughs> um, and i was at it i was Women's at it inroads on the industry by pretending to be men at times that's i mean right. if we look at Brontes, they all made themselves Ellis Kerr and Acton Bell because if they used their real names, you know, who wanted to buy books from a bunch of women? Nobody. So unconscious bias. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. So tell yeah. us about, you know, when women did start to write, even under an, an assumed name or a pseudonym, um, what sort of uh, books did they write and how did they get to get published in the first place? For a very long time, you know, the only the only edge that women had into the industry was writing fiction. So all of those early, early English novels by women were all that novels. You know, they were not a lot of them not doing, you know, nonfiction, serious academic research, largely because women you know, in those times in the, you know, 18th, 19th century, when people were starting to write novels, women didn't have access to as much education as men. There was just no question. And of course, we can pick out a few women from history who were able to be, you know, serious, intelligent, research, you know, academic women, but those were still the exception. Um, what I think is interesting about where we have landed now, I mean, women always wanted to write things and women have been some of our greatest writers in history. And now, because women have so much buying power, it's not, I would say, that we're publishing books that only women want. I think what's interesting about it is, when I think about it, and I may be overstating it because it's my industry and I'm proud of it in a lot of ways, but I think it's one of the few places that the playing field is very level. You know, if you're a woman and you can write a book that sells, we don't care what your gender is. We're not like, oh, we want to only have men. You know, this is kind of a controversial position because there are plenty of people who will tell you that men's books get more marketing dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find statistics that will back that up. But in general, you know, maybe there are some famous male authors who are getting more marketing money than some women. But if you've got a famous female author who's selling a lot of books, she's getting as much and more. You know, and I don't have access at my fingertips to every single book and its sales. But, but if we look at the, one of the best-selling books in the whole entire world, 
J.K. Rowling, who, as we know, did not call herself Joanne. You know, she went with her initials, I think, in no small part to just avoid the question of who is this, what gender, you know. She was writing this series about a boy as her main character, and she used her initials. And even then when she, after all her years of Harry Potter fame, started writing something else, she started doing the Cormoran Strike series as Robert Galbraith. And J.K. Rowling is a well-known feminist. I'm not questioning her credentials at all. I just think it's interesting that she chose a man's name. Like, I wonder what would have happened if that had just been Roberta Smith writing those series of books, you know? And I mean, uh, as you say, women authors do sell. I mean, she has sold, what, half a billion? Half a billion. She is one of the, she is the best-selling modern author of all time. Half a billion books. And, and to get ahead of her, um, there are the, uh, the sayings of Mao Zedong, which I believe probably has a political component in various Chinese people. Being believe that. It's probably <laughs> mandatory in certain I schools as well. Yes. <laughs> and then above that, we only find the Bible with five or six billion copies sold. But J.K. Rowling is up there in the ranks of, of the Bible in terms of sales. And the Bible had a head start in time. Well. And the Bible had quite a bit of a head start. And also, you know, the very fact that we can track its sales means that people are making additions and selling them to make money. So. <laughs> Who else is up there in terms of sales and, well, international recognition, not well, even just sales? The ones that I just like to look at. I mean, if we want to look closer to home here, Maeve Binchy um, is is arguably the best-selling Irish author of all time. I don't have like Joycey in statistics. I'm sure there's been a lot of sales, but I really, I don't know that Ulysses has sold the 40 million copies that Maeve Vinci's books have sold. You know, it, I'd it, say with, with Ulysses, it's, a lot of people have bought it, but may never have read it. I mean, I have like three copies of it, but I've got into two <laughs> chapters, that's it. Yeah. But whereas Maeve's stories were stories that were easily acceptable or accessible, yeah. sorry, and you know, easy to turn into a nice film, a feel-good film. That's true too. And that is frankly one of the criticisms of, of what we do call commercial women's fiction. We do not call men's novels male fiction. We do look at some writers and think that they're particularly masculine in their approach. Somebody like Cormac McCarthy, you know, or, or um, I don't know, I don't want to like be naming people as like, oh, he's only writing for men. And, and Cormac McCarthy's certainly not only writing for men, but, but we do tend to look at women's books like, oh, that's for women. Whereas men write books and everybody's supposed to buy it. So I'm not saying that there's no bias at all in this. Mm. I, I just feel that if you've got something that you want to write and we can sell it, we don't care what gender you are. And, and I don't know that we can say that about all industries anymore. Because even if you look at Hollywood, you know, there are women who are now, like Scarlett Johansson, I believe is the best paid actress in the entire world, actor, but, but it's always been men. You know, there's very few women who've broken into the ranks of, of making as much money. Whereas female writers and male writers, you know, are getting the same standard royalty rates on their books, you know. There's a lot of, you know, wonderful female talent coming up through the ranks. I mean, you look at the likes of Trinity Graduate, Sally Rooney. Yes. Fantastic, you know, books. She's a voice of the generation and she's a woman. And I love that. Yeah, she's incredible. Anybody else coming up through the ranks? Um, I'm sure you've seen all these reviews of Nisha Dolan recently. Um, but I think uh, she's, you know, a young Irish writer who's coming sort of on... on Sally's heels and Sally in fact had published her short stories when she was at the stinging fly um 
I think it's interesting that that she's sort of in no way to to comment on her her work, but I everybody's frantically looking for the next Sally Rooney, and I think that it's been fantastic for her book and her sales and and her reviews that that people are noticing. Um, oh, she's kind of like Sally Rooney, and um, I think it's interesting that that an outsized influence continues to come from Irish writers, even in this generation. You know, it, it has always happened, you know, there's a huge amount of like Irish writers that have become Nobel winners, you know, it's when we, when we look at it, this small island has had a vast influence. And I just think it's fascinating that these young women are continuing that today. What, what do you think women, like even going back a couple of hundred years, what do women bring to their perspective, bring to literature? I mean, are they looking at the domestic yeah, even you look at, you know, poets and the writing about domestic things, which were just shunned initially because they weren't big topics, you know. Do they look at the micro or do they look at aspects that men tend generally not to? Well, you know, I'm going to draw back on, fall back on that old Jane Austen quote where she said she worked on two inches of ivory, but she worked incredibly small and closely on that. I think that women have for a long time focused on domestic space. What I think, not quite to answer your question, but just to put that in perspective, there have been plenty of male writers who have also worked on the domestic space, and yet we have traditionally tend to treat it differently. You know, there's there's a lot of writers that, that because they are men, again, I, I hate to sound critical because it's hard to write. It's always difficult to write, and I don't mean to take away from anyone's accomplishment, but the hours, the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Michael Cunningham that became a major film, I've always felt that if that had been written by a woman, it would have just been, oh, that charming little takeoff on Virginia Woolf, you know, but, but I, something about having a man's name on it, you can see why somebody like J.K. Rowling didn't want to write a children's book by a woman called Joanne, you know, not, not initially out of the gate, because I do think that the bias is probably that even women are inclined to take male literature, and I'm making big quote marks in the air, more seriously. Whereas women, oh, they're just writing books about women and families and stuff and boyfriends and lovers and husbands. But men, of course, have always written about these things too. You know, if we think about Hanif Karishi in the UK, such a fantastic writer. Again, it sounds like I'm being critical of fantastic writers, but you know, he wrote a book about infidelity that was just discussed up one side and down the other, both from the incredible insights and the how dare he. But if women do it, they're just writing about how their marriage went sour and they took a boyfriend. You know, <laughs> Whereas we so often take the perspective that a man is elevating it to literature. I mean, we see this in all sorts of marketing. When women started to like rosé, it became that silly pink thing that women drink, you know? Whereas rosé is in fact a perfectly respectable wine that men have drunk for a long time. But as soon as women liked it, it had to become silly. And when men like something like craft beer, it becomes elevated to a fine art, you know? Oh, I'm on a pilgrimage to this incredible little craft beer maker, whereas we're just you know, we're having frosé and, you know, pink cupcake flavored chocolates with rosé in them, you know. So there's definitely that bias. It's but, about respect, isn't it? Yeah. It uh, tell us a little bit about Hilary Fannin's new book. You've been looking after Hilary, haven't you? Yes, I'm really delighted to be her literary agent and work with her. Um, I think one, one of the wonderful things about Hilary's book without, you know, getting into a lot of her personal life. But Hillary, as as we know from, from our work with her with Trinity Women Graduates, Hillary did not go to third level education until she was into her 50s. 
And she told us all once, speaking at a speech to TWG, that um, we, the women sitting in the room at that time, were the people that she used to be afraid of. And that then when she realized that, that a university education was still open to all, that, you know, that suddenly this whole world had opened to her and every time she walked under the arches to go to her classes, she had that feeling, um, which I thought was really fantastic. But, but I am only referring to that to say, Hillary is someone who, despite a very distinguished career as a playwright and has been you know, a television critic for the Irish Times, and then it has written a highly regarded column here last year. She won the um, columnist of the year in a broadsheet here in Ireland. This is her first novel now in her 50s, and it is her debut. And generally we think of debut novels happening when you're more like Sally Rooney's age or into your 30s. You know, it tends to be a younger person's game to write a highly regarded, highly acclaimed debut piece of fiction. And here is Hillary having done it now. And it's incredible. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that it's gonna be okay, but at the moment she's sort of published into this crisis that we're all enduring, but one of the early the reviews that we had for it was in the Times of London, which said, it is early in the year, but surely this book is a contender for one of the books of the year. Wow, yeah. It's got huge reviews though here, and you see I follow her on Twitter, and we know she has a huge following in the Irish Times for her weekly columns, and people buy the paper just to get her, her column. I've heard people, you know, I've seen people declare that on Twitter. Um, but it's wonderful for her, isn't it? But it's wonderful for us too, because we get to enjoy this. Um, but I think people are spent with COVID-19, people are spending more time giving themselves time to read it oh, and to read all books. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's a great time. It's a terrible time in some ways, but it's a great time for reflection and for reading, isn't it? It's a good time to convert to electronic reading if you haven't done that either, <laughs> which I myself was resistant to for a very long time, but there's um, definitely an instant gratification aspect of electronic reading. You know, I tend to use a Kindle app on my mobile. You know, I don't want to be carrying a lot of extra devices. And so, you know, it's a change to get used to reading on your phone, but then it's always with you. You know, you can pull it out on a train if we're ever on a train or a subway again, we will be. <laughs> um, but, but you can but, still buy it from bookstores as well. I think you can buy it online, can't you? You like that feel of a book in your hands. Yes, you definitely can. Right now, and things will clear again, but right now we're having some difficulty with shipping and things. It's just, uh, it's completely understandable. But but it's, it's nice that people can access anything that interests them. Like I downloaded all of Proust onto my mobile, which I hadn't looked at since my university days. And I've been really enjoying reading Proust late at night when I can't sleep. You know? What else would you recommend at the moment before we wrap up? <laughs> well, of course, there's Sally Rooney. You hardly need me to say to read her, but I'm actually a really huge fan of hers. I find the world, she's the Marmite of the literary world and people either really love it and they get it or people are like, I don't understand. It's just a little romance. And it's to me, that's that sort of bias against women in their fiction of like, oh, because she might. I just love the tension that's right through it because you cannot see what's coming next. It's yeah, just amazing. And the emotional shift. And then Hilary Fanon's novel, The Weight of Love, is just, it's, it's something I'm so incredibly proud to be working with. Um, and I, I sometimes describe her to people as Sally Rooney for middle-aged grown-ups because she's got a similar sort of um, emotional tension at the heart of it and, and has a similar, at the end of Normal People, there's this, this very small action that shows a huge emotional shift between the characters. And Hilary Fannin has that moment towards the end of her book. And when I read it, I just had this emotional, you know, like my stomach 
dropped out and I got incredibly emotional and weepy. But when you read it, it's just a quite a small moment when a woman on an airplane realizes something about her entire life and it sort of has a domino effect as she realizes everything's okay. changed. Okay. Yeah. Don't tell us anymore. No, no. <laughs> no spoiler alert. <laughs> so to anybody out there who, you know, now has a lot of time because they can't work or whatever and who thinks they finally want to sit down and write their book, could you give them some advice? What would you say? Yes, you know, I said this and I want to say it again and, and bear with me this one moment. I want to read this one quote that I love so very much if I made that Toni Morrison thing that I thought was so valuable. Um, I had said when I was first talking about this to a large group of people that, okay, I'm probably not going to be your literary agent just because, you know, everybody can't agent everybody, but that if you have a story to tell, one of the things that's nice about it is you don't need to go out and buy any equipment. You've either already got your laptop or you have a piece of paper and a pencil and when you have a story to tell, it comes out of you. And I'm just going to note that Maya Angelou said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. The idea is to write it so that people hear it and it slides to the brain and goes straight to the heart. So she felt that you shouldn't let it fester. But Toni Morrison felt even more strongly that it was your duty to put your story down on the page somewhere. So this is a, a very famous quote from her speech when she received the Nobel Prize in 1993. Um, if you bear with me, I'll just read these few sentences. Her first statement as she started was, if you find a book you really want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And I would just like to know, we're not all going to be Toni Morrison, but that doesn't mean we can't follow her instructions. She said, we will not blame you if your reach exceeds your grasp. We know you can never do it properly once and for all. Passion is never enough. Neither is skill. But try. For your sake and for ours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. Don't tell us what to believe and what to fear. Show us belief's wide skirt and the stitch that unravels fear's call. We die and that may be the meaning of life, but we do language and that may be life's measure. Wow. I love even the female analogy of a skirt. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> There we are with our needles, making it all come together. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. Um, just again, just I'm going to be very bold and just stretch this a little bit. What would you, you know, you know, going through your career, what can you give us five tips or maybe three? Oh. I'll stretch to three. No, what would you your tops be? I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna not give you exactly what you're asked, and give you something better that I've heard Great. recently from Hillary Fannin talking to people. Um, Hillary told me when I was talking to her about her memoir, Hopscotch, which was nominated for Irish Book of the Year, the year that it was published. I said, how do you do this where you seem to almost be giving us things that your parents said when you were such a small child, because that book is written from the point of view of a child. So we adults understand what's happening, even as the child never does in the course of the book. Um, and Hillary said to me, if you sit with it, you will feel it come back to you. So it's not that you have to write memoir, but if you're looking for that truth that Toni Morrison wanted you to show us on the page, Hillary said, if you sit with it and think of the thing that you could feel or see, it will come back to you. And, and I have found that to be so fascinating and true. You know, Hemingway said, write one true thing and then write another. And Hillary got that. You know, you sit down and you be quiet and you let it come and then you have to start writing it. And then she told me something that Anne Enright told her. So I'll pass along this secondary bit of excellent advice. 
you know, the main thing for any writer is you have to show up and put your bum in the chair every single day. But Anne said, taking it a step further, if you do that, those characters on the page will start to talk back to you. So whether it's someone in your memory, in your childhood, that you're trying to understand or come to grips with something that happened in your life and to record it for yourself or for the future, or if you are trying to create people and characters on the page, if you keep showing up for them day after day, they will slowly start to return the favor. Terrific advice. I would also add something really small to that that works for me when I sit down and write something or edit something like that. I give myself that faffing time. Yes. And that is like tidy the desk, find the stapler, you know, all that stupid stuff that you cannot sit still. So give yourself the 15, 20 minutes to do the faffing and sit down. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> your brain will come into the space as well. You know? Oh, that's excellent. That's very yeah. true. I yes. find that with my work every day. <laughs> No, I have to show up half an hour early to get the faffing out of the way. Faffing, the cup of tea, the hanging about. Yeah. That was Sharon Bowers, literary agent, my guest this week on the Women in Leadership podcast. You can check out our back catalogue on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear about the issues that you're concerned with when it comes to women in the world. You can use the website comment area www.womeninleadership.ie or you can email us at info at womeninleadership.ie. We're also on LinkedIn and on Twitter at LeadingWomenPod. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care.